We're going to read uh, Ecclesiastes 2, page 553. This is the second uh, of a sermon series in the book of Ecclesiastes. Just, you know, because we wanted to, to give you something that's uplifting. So I'm going to read the whole chapter, <coughs> and then it's audiovisual time. Got a little video for you. Let's read uh, Ephesians. Or sorry, Ephesians. <laughs> it's been. A, it really has been a long week. Can I just <laughs> Ecclesiastes chapter two? This is the uh, the preacher, uh, the teacher. That's the or Solomon. Uh, And he's writing, and he said, I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. But behold, this also was vanity. I said of laughter, it is mad. And of pleasure, what use is it? I searched with all my heart how to cheer my body with wine, my heart still guiding me with wisdom, and how to lay hold on folly till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. I made great works. I built houses. I planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks. I planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. I bought male and female slaves. I had slaves who were born in my house. I had also great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines to delight the children of man. So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also, my wisdom remained with me. And whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep it from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil. And this was my reward from all my toil. Then I considered all that my hands had done. And the toil I had expended in doing it, and behold, all was vanity and a striving after wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. So I turned to consider wisdom and madness and folly. For what can a man do who comes after the king? Only what has already been done. Then I saw that there is more gain in wisdom than in folly as there is more gain in light than in darkness. The wise person has his eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. And yet I perceived that the same event happens to them all. And I said in my my heart, what happens to the fool will happen to me also. Why then have I been so very wise? And I said in my heart, "This this also is vanity. For of the wise, as of the fool, there is no enduring remembrance, seeing that in the days to come all will have been long forgotten. How the wise dies just like the fool. So I hated life 
as what is done under the sun was grievous to me, for all is vanity and a striving after wind. I hated all my toil in which I toil under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And who knows whether he'll be wise or a fool? Yet he will be master of all for which I toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. This is also vanity. So I turned about and gave my heart up to despair over all the toil of my labors under the sun because sometimes a person who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it. This is also vanity and a great evil. What is a man from all the toil and striving of the heart with which he toils beneath under the sun. For all his days are full of sorrow, and his work is vexation. Even in the night his heart does not rest. This is also vanity. There is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also, I saw, is from the hand of God, for apart from him, who can eat or, ha- or who can have enjoyment? For to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. But the sinner, he's given the business of gathering and collecting. Only to the one who pleases God. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. The late, great Johnny Cash, everyone. If you don't know that that was Johnny Cash, you should probably leave. It's not just the non-Christians that have the good music. We've got some good artists too, like Johnny. Why is that video so moving? Did anybody else, or maybe it's just me, maybe it's just me that gets tingles at various point in that, points in that movie, when he's got the, the wine glass and he's just pouring it over everything. I just, just that's compelling to me. Why? Why is that such a moving music video? Well, in part because I think Johnny Cash could have sat down and written the book of Ecclesiastics. Because the song and the video is ultimately a message about what is meaningful and what is meaningless. And Cash's life exemplifies that. If you've seen the movie Walk the Line or you know anything about his life, it was a life of unfathomable success and acclaim, and yet a life of deep brokenness and addiction and family breakup. Cash was desperate for the validation and affirmation of his father. He acquired fame, he acquired stuff, large houses, but that affirmation never came. He threw himself into every pleasure he could find. He medicated himself with pills and with alcohol. There's a, uh, there's a picture on the internet, you might have seen uh, a meme of it. There's a picture on the internet of a young Johnny Cash sitting in a hedge eating a cake. And he said, you might, you might be high, but you'll never be Johnny Cash sitting in a hedge eating a cake high. That was his excess before finally hitting rock bottom and coming to find new life in Jesus. So here he sits in the music video, the house of cash, his museum is closed, 
The platinum album lies smashed on the floor. The banquet table is full, but there's nobody eating at it. The wine is abundant, and he pours it out, and he says, you can have it all, my empire of dirt. He looks back at his life, and that's his assessment. It's my empire of dirt. All the stuff, being successful, indulging in every pleasure, None of it for cash and none of it for us ultimately answers the question of what is truly meaningful, what really matters. Stuff doesn't answer that question. The natural universe doesn't answer that question. Even ardent atheists like Stephen Hawking, so Stephen Hawking, uh, his seminal work, A Brief History of Time, uh, that sits on many coffee shops or coffee tables going unread, Uh, He says this at the end of the book. This is Stephen Hawking. doesn't believe in God. He said, even if there is only one possible unified theory, it is just a set of rules and equations. What is it that breathes fire into the equations to make a universe for them to describe? The usual approach of science of constructing a mathematical model cannot answer the question of why there should be a universe for the model to describe. Why does the universe go to all the bother of existing? Knowing everything still doesn't answer some of the most fundamental questions about who we are, why we're here, and what really matters. Some of us, we when those big life questions come along, we take the ostrich approach. We kind of go, I'm not going to bother about that. Uh, I'm going to stick my hand, head in the sand. Now, I, I'm aware that uh, a great Irish writer, Samuel Beckett, said, who knows what the ostrich sees when its head is in the sand. Uh, but run with me. Run with the metaphor. We ignore. We ostrich at that point. I can't know it, so I'm not going to try. The problem is that that doesn't really work problem is that those questions, they don't go away. That inner longing doesn't stop. And actually, whether we consciously or unconsciously recognize it, we all look somewhere to something or someone for meaning. You might think that you're ignoring the questions by not cognitively, consciously thinking about them, but when you, when you look to, uh, to your family or to a spouse or to achievement for your identity, for who you are, for validation, you are answering the meaning question. So, ostriching doesn't work. What the writer, Solomon, is doing for us here in Ecclesiastes, I know I know, like, he's despairing of life and himself. Yes, it's, it does seem very depressing, but actually what Solomon's doing is he's, he's trying some stuff out for you. He's running some stuff down the track to see where it goes in order that when you come to your life, you look at this and go, well, there's no point pursuing that because I know where it goes. Solomon's already tried it for me. He's, he's your crash test dummy. You can think of him that way. 
He's trying pleasure. He goes, ah, didn't work. He's trying, he's trying prudence and wisdom. Ah, didn't work. He's trying success. Ah, didn't really work. It didn't give me the meaning that I'm looking for. So that when you come to those things, you can go, oh, hold on a second. It didn't work for the wisest guy that ever lived, save Jesus. Why would I think that it works better for me? That's what he's doing. He's, he's our crash test dummy. And in this chapter, he's trying pleasure and success. Is that relevant? Do people pursue pleasure and success? Are we a very repressed generation in society? Uh, no. So I think this might be relevant to one or two of us, this chapter about pleasure and success. So we begin. And he begins in verse 1, I said of my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. Or as he concludes it in verse 10, he says, and whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep it from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure. I kept my heart from no pleasure. Imagine it for a second. Like Solomon's a rich guy. He's got a blank check. He's like, do you want another steak? Yes, pile it on. How about a helicopter ride over New York City? Sure, I'm in. Would you like to go snorkeling on the Great Barrier Reef? Two weeks? Yes. Two weeks on the Great Barrier Reef? Yeah, why not? Would you like to go to Elton John's Oscar after party? The most sought after ticket in town. Would you like to go? Yeah, why not? I'm not denying myself any pleasure. Everything was fair game. Nothing was off limits. And yet he says in verse 1b, but behold, this also was vanity. It was meaningless. He even says of laughter, verse 2, laughter is madness and pleasure is of no use. At this point, I don't know about you, but at this point, I read verse 1 and then the, his conclusion, and I think... <laughs> He just wasn't doing it right. If you give me a go, like, I'm sure I can do it better. Does anybody else think that? Like, well, you know, it was like 3,000 years ago and he didn't have, you know, Xbox. Uh, <laughs> or, you know, he didn't know, even know that the Great Barrier Reef existed and there were no helicopters. He just wasn't doing it right. But actually, the ultimate emptiness of these things is well documented in our modern experience. Uh, those of you who have seen uh, the movie Watchmen or have read the, the graphic novel by Alan Moore, uh, Rorschach, one of the characters in it, he tells a, he tells a joke. I'm not going to try and do his voice. Uh, Rorschach tells a joke, the only joke that he tells. He says, man goes to a doctor, says he's depressed, says life seems harsh and cruel says he feels all alone in a threatening world. Doctor says, treatment is simple. The great clown, Palagachi, is in town tonight. Go and see him. That should pick you up. Man bursts into tears and says, but doctor, I am Palagachi. Robin Williams Stephen Fry, David Walliams, to name but a few, some of the wittiest, 
men of our time know the emptiness of what the writer is talking about. They know the madness of laughter. One quote from Stephen Fry on this, he says, sometimes I'm filming QI and I say, ha ha, yeah, yeah, when inside I'm saying I want to die. So for those of us, like myself, who sit here and think, he's just not doing it right. There's plenty of documented experience in our modern day that that's just not the case. And so he tries to cheer his body with wine, to cheer his body. His body knows that there's something wrong, that there's something broken, and so he tries to escape out of it. Cheering his body with wine, this is not a comment on whether to drink alcohol or whether not to drink alcohol. That's not, I'm sure it's been used that way, but that's not what this text is about. But I tell you what, it's not about the odd glass of Merlot. Here he's trying to escape. He's trying to dull his senses to the world around us. And don't we see that? Don't we see the pe- people just, they can't cope with the clamor, either the outside clamor or just the inside restlessness. And so they try whatever they can to escape. And here, for the writer, it's wine. He's saying maybe the answer is to try and check out altogether. And all of us escape in different ways. Might not be a nice Merlot. Might be a Netflix binge. Isn't those kind of 16 seconds, just the sweetest 16 seconds, like between, between one episode and the next one, where it just kind of rolls on? Maybe it's that. Anything that allows us to turn down the volume on life just for a minute. But here's the thing. At some point, House of Cards runs out and you've got to wait until next year and you don't know what to do with yourself. At some point, the buzz wears off and you sober up. At some point, the credits roll and and the lights go up and we're right back where we started and the volume gets turned right up on life and you can't cope again. So what do you do? Pleasure doesn't work. Laughter doesn't work. Wine, escape, doesn't work. Well, he's going to throw himself into being successful. Verses uh, 48, he becomes abundantly successful. He has houses and gardens and pools and servants and a great herd of, uh, great herds and flocks and gold and silver. And yet, and the conclusion of it all in verse 9 is he became so great that he surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. He becomes exceedingly wealthy. And in fact, he even enjoys his work, verse 10. I resonate with that. I like what I do. I know some of you sitting here do. Some of you hate what you do, and it's just kind of a grind until you get somewhere else. Some of you sitting here, you love your work. You love your job. And he enjoys it. And yet, when all is completed, he looks at it and he concludes that it too was meaningless. His success is empty. That it doesn't actually give the meaning, the value, the worth that he was striving for. Listen to uh, the great theologian Madonna. I have an iron will. 
And all of my will has always been to conquer some horrible feeling of inadequacy. I'm always struggling with that fear. I push past one spell of it, and I discover myself as a special human being. And then I get to another stage of life, and I think that I am mediocre and uninteresting. And I find a way to get myself out of that, and again, and again, and again. My drive in life is from this horrible fear of being mediocre. And that's always pushing me, pushing me. Because even though I have become somebody, I still have to prove that I am somebody. My struggle has never ended, and it probably never will. I have become somebody, and yet I still feel that I have to prove that I am somebody. Or uh, Chris Ever, Evert, uh, a tennis player in the 1970s and 80s, who was at the top of her game when she retired, and she says, as I contemplated retirement, I was petrified. She said to an interviewer, I had no idea who I was or what I could be away from tennis. I was depressed and afraid because so much of my life had been defined by my being a tennis champion. I was completely lost. Winning made me feel like I was somebody. It made me feel pretty. It was like, it was like being hooked on a drug. I needed the wins. The, pl- the applause. I needed it all in order to have an identity. Do you know who you are outside of what you do? Do you know who you are outside of what you study? Do you know who you are outside of the career that you are pursuing? Do you have a sense of self, a sense of identity outside of all of those things? If you do not, you're in a very precarious position. The writer is right. All of this is ultimately chasing after the wind. And so he goes on, he tries the opposite. Instead of pursuing pleasure and excess and success, he tries prudence and wisdom. In verses 12 to 17, we pick up pace as we go through these verses. He's trying the exact opposite. And this is where many Christian sermons would land. You think if you're non-Christian friends, those of you uh, who wouldn't call yourself Christians, uh, maybe you're thinking, "Uh uh-huh, here we go. He's done the pleasure thing. He's done sex, and now he's trying prudence. And Mark's going to go, that's where we all should be. We should all should be prudent. And don't spend too much money, and don't enjoy yourself. Put down the glass of Merlot. Isn't that what people expect to hear? They roll their eyes and say, here we go. It's the Christian saying, abstain, repress. You Christians are never happier than when you're making somebody else miserable. But that is not the case here. Sure, he acknowledges that there is wisdom in not being a drunken fool. Yes, can we agree on that? There's wisdom in not being a drunken fool and having a certain degree of clarity about life. There is wisdom and an advantage in that. But look at what he concludes in verses 15 and 16. What is his end? That's the same as the fool. We are all going to die. 
End of verse 16, how the wise dies just like the fool. So prudence and moderation might have some wisdom, but ultimately it too is striving after wind. And it, gets, it just gets even worse. It's right down in the, in the dumps. Verse 17, I hated life. And do you know what he hates even more? He hates the fact that he might have to leave all that he's got to some idiot. Heard the story of the rich man that died? Rich man dies, and the family go to hear the will uh, read. And they go into the room and they say to the lawyer, how much did he leave? And the lawyer looks and says, all of it. All of it. Not one cent did he take with him. He realizes that all this stuff is just going to be given away. Time Magazine article says that 70% of wealthy families lose their fortune by the second generation and 90% by the third. So if you're striving after, you know, having, you know, the big house and the six-figure salary and blah de blah and having all the stuff, 70% gone in the first generation, sorry, second generation, and 90% by the third. Statistically, it takes 19 days 19 days before the heir to a fortune goes and buys a car. So if you've inherited a fortune, you went and bought a car, you're in that statistic. So he concludes in verse 21 that this is also vanity and a great evil. So, let's pray. <laughs> What's the answer? We're striving after wind. Everything's meaningless. You can't enjoy yourself. There's no point. There's no point in working hard. So what's the answer? Well, of course, it is not that we don't work hard, and it's not that we don't enjoy ourselves. The repeated refrain throughout this passage, and indeed throughout the book of Ecclesiastes, or one of the repeated refrains, is this little phrase, under the sun. Under the sun. Life under the sun, S-U-N. This little phrase is not talking about geography or cosmology, I suppose. It is a spiritual term. It is a spiritual reference. It's a reference to, uh, to life apart from God. It's life apart from God. That's what's ultimately validating. That's what's meaningless. It's taking these things that God has made pleasure a good Merlot, laughter, wine, work, success. It is taking all of those things and ripping them out of their intended context and their intended use and putting the weight on them of making them give you meaning. If you take those things and make them, uh, make them validate you, that's when it comes crumbling down. That's when you find that everything is meaningless because they were never supposed to bear that weight. You think of get, uh, many of you will get married at some point or other. If you look to your spouse for your validation, for your sense of who you are, and not to God, you will crush and cripple your spouse because they were never meant to bear that weight. 
They were never meant to be God to you. I try to audition for the job of God all the time, and I find that I am woefully underqualified. And so is your spouse. These things are gifts from the God who made us and the God who imbues everything with meaning. He is the one who stops everything from being vanity. He's the one who gives us eyes to see the meaning of the world around us. Let me illustrate a a simple example. I love food. Can you tell? I love food. Dave loves food. You're thinking nothing better than walking around some European city, just eating everything. Not everything, like the really good stuff. (laughs) You know what I mean. We love food. Now, food, in and of itself, because some other people approach it this way, it's really nothing more than fuel. It's just, it's just functional. It keeps the machine going. Some people have that view of food. It's a fairly meaningless view of food, that it is simply fuel. That thinking is life under the sun. As a Christian, however, we look at food and we realize that food, good food, not microwavable stuff, you know that. Good food is God's love made tasty. It really is. It's God's love made tasty. When you, when you cut into that perfectly cooked steak and you, you feel those juices swimming around your mouth and you're salivating before it even gets there and it is just perfect, and it melts in your mouth. Think back to, the, uh, to that scene in the Matrix where Cyrus is cutting into that steak, and he says, ignorance is bliss. And it's just this amazing thing. For the Christian, when we cut into that steak, or if you're a vegetarian, that aubergine or whatever, <laughs> do- <laughs> whatever does it for you, we realize that this is an expression of God's love to us. Why do you think I always, when we have communion, why do you think I'm always kind of harping on the fact that this is a sensory experience? We smell wine, we taste bread. God is communicating all the time to us, even through what we eat. And the chef who has prepared it, he is an image bearer of God. And when he cooks, he is creating. He is creating after he is his creator. He is making something beautiful. Do you see how having having God in your frame of reference actually changes how you view the world, even right down to what you eat? So when you go to to lunch later, whether it's to Bunsen or to KFC, Harris, you can you think this is <laughs> this is God's love made tasty. We find our meaning and our value not in life under the sun but in life under the good rule of the God who made us. And that frees us from the frustration that we see in this chapter. So, students, all of you who are about to clear off for, I don't know, half a year, 
Should you work hard? Yes. Yes, you should. We are not one of these Christian institutions or organizations that says, just drop a grade, just drop a degree classification and, ser- and come and serve us. No, you should work hard. But if you want these results to further your career so that you can have a stronger sense of self, or if you need the validation of a grade or the affirmation of a parent or the admiration of a classmate, you're quite simply doomed. You're doomed to the frustration of Ecclesiastes chapter 2. You will find yourself tumbling into the world of the writer because it will never, ever be enough. For his life under the good rule of God means you can work hard, you can get a good job, but if those things are all taken away, your identity is still secure. You still have a sense of self because it's not based on your performance. It's not based on whether or not, like Johnny Cash, your father likes you. And so he concludes in verse 26, for to the one who pleases pleases him, God has given him wisdom and knowledge and joy. But to the sinner, he is given the business of gathering and collecting. Only to the one who pleases God. Here's our problem. You want joy, wisdom, knowledge? We need to be the one who pleases God. And there was only ever one of them. And it was the Lord Jesus. We are not the ones who by nature and choice choose to please God. And yet, he lived in our place. He is the one who lived a life of perfect obedience. He is the one that through his death makes us righteous, makes us those people who please God. It is because of him that we don't need to live a life of meaningless frustration. Rather, we can do exactly what Johnny Cash did. We can look at our life and we can call it an empire of dirt because that's what it is and put our trust in the only one who can save us from frustration and from death. And then what we find? What we find is that life buzzes and sings with meaning. We can eat and we can drink And we can work to the glory of God, knowing that these things aren't ultimate in themselves, but that he is the great giver. The world is alive with meaning when we have the eyes of faith to see it. I close with a quote from the great Saint Augustine. He says that our hearts are restless until they find rest in you, O God. Let's pray. Father, each of us is mindful right now of those ways and those times when we strive after the wind, when we delight in what is ultimately our empire of dirt. 
Father, would we see all of these things for the gifts that they are and thank you, the giver, put our trust in the Lord Jesus for our, as the basis of our stable identity. So that whether we eat or drink or pass or fail, have the dream house or not, that we can still say that we are children of the living God and that life buzzes and sings with meaning because you have given us the eyes of faith to see it. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.